Hey y'all, Eve's here. We're doubling up today with two events in history. One from me and one from former host Tracy V. Wilson. On with the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's October 3rd. Italy invaded Ethiopia on this day in 1935. From the 1880s until about 1914, European powers had divided up most of the continent of Africa into colonial territories. This whole mad rush to try to claim as much of Africa as possible was called the Scramble for Africa. And after all this scramble, the Ethiopian Empire, also known as Abyssinia, was one of a very few parts of Africa that was not under European colonial control. Italy had tried to invade the Ethiopian Empire in 1895, but it failed, suffering a massive defeat a year later. Italy's military had been more advanced than Ethiopia's was, but Ethiopia had mustered a huge resistance force and had gotten support from Russia. Ultimately, during this initial invasion in the 1890s, Italy had to fall back to Somaliland, which it controlled. It took a while after this whole invasion for Italy and Ethiopia to agree on a border between Ethiopia and Somaliland. It was finally established in 1928. But then in 1934, Italy built a fort at the Wawa Oasis, which was unquestionably in Ethiopian territory. This fort housed a Somali force, which was serving under Italian command. It is not clear exactly what happened, but there was some kind of dispute between the Somali force that was garrisoned at the Oasis and Ethiopian soldiers, and that happened in early December of 1924. Each side said that the other one made the initial attack. Benito Mussolini used this as justification to invade 10 months later. The invasion into Ethiopia came from multiple directions, and it combined Italian forces and forces drawn from their African colonies. The Italian army, as had been the case before, was better armed and better trained than the Ethiopian army, and it pressed toward the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa, which fell on May 5, 1936. Benito Mussolini proclaimed Victor Emmanuel III, who was king of Italy, to be the emperor of the Ethiopian empire. The League of Nations had been formed in the end of World War I with the goal of ensuring peace after this point. And from the outset of this Italian invasion, the League condemned what Italy was doing. But the League of Nations also wasn't a military power, and its ability to respond to something like this was really limited. The League voted to institute economic sanctions against Italy, but the major world powers didn't really do much to uphold these sanctions. This really undermined the League of Nations' ability to do what it had been designed to do, and it showed the world that it was kind of toothless. It stood out as an example of how the League just wouldn't have much power without the backing of the most powerful nations in the world. In the end, Italy declared this a victory after invading Ethiopia, but Ethiopia never actually surrendered. Consequently, Ethiopia considers this to be a military occupation, not an absorption into the Italian colonial empire. And this occupation was really deadly. Ethiopia continued to resist against Italy throughout. 
and as many as a quarter of a million Ethiopians died due to both conventional weaponry and gas attacks. This occupation continued until World War II. Great Britain declared war on Italy in 1939, and on April 6, 1941, a combined British and Ethiopian force drove the Italians out of the capital and restored Ethiopia's last emperor, Haile Selassie, to power. You can learn more about Haile Selassie in the February 2nd, 2011 episode of Stuff You Missed in History class called The Last Emperor of Ethiopia. Thanks to Christopher Hasiotis for his research work on today's episode and to Tari Harrison for her, all of her audio work on this podcast. You can subscribe to this day in history class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for a famous way to travel. Hi, everyone. I'm Eves, and welcome to this day in history class a podcast where we dust off a little piece of history and place it ever so gently on your brain shelf every day. The day was October 3rd, 1795. Tula, a leader of the Curacao slave revolt, was executed. Curacao is an island in the Caribbean Sea. The Arawak indigenous peoples from South America are thought to have moved to the island many hundreds of years ago. In 1499, Spaniard Alonso de Ojeda arrived on the island with an expedition, marking the first time Europeans visited Curacao. The Spanish then colonized the island, which at that time was inhabited by the Caquetillo, a coastal tribe of Arawak people. The Spanish enslaved the Caquetillos and sent them to Hispaniola. But by 1634, the Dutch had occupied the island. Curacao was a major port of trade for the Dutch West India Company. That included the trade of enslaved people, which was the main business of the island. Most of the enslaved Africans who came through were bought and sold in Curacao and were taken to other islands in the Dutch West Indies and in Spanish colonies. Some of those enslaved Africans did remain on the island and worked on plantations. There was a large number of enslaved people on the island, but there were also many manumissions, and many free people of color and Black people also lived in Curacao, and some of them even owned enslaved people. There were slave revolts in Curacao in the 18th century, including minor ones in 1716, 1750, and 1774. One of the most significant revolts in Curacao's history is the one that began on August 17, 1795. About 50 enslaved people who worked on the Danip plantation refused to work and went to nearby plantations to gather more supporters. There were several reasons that the unrest among enslaved people had reached this point. Dutch planters were imposing more restrictions on enslaved people to increase productivity and profit. They forced enslaved people to work on Sundays, and they hired enslaved people out to others. Slave owners also collectively punished enslaved people for the offense of a single person. On top of the conflict swelling around those changes, enslaved people in Curacao also received word of the anti-slavery and anti-colonial uprisings in the French colony of Saint-Domingue, or present-day Haiti as well as the defeat of the Dutch by French revolutionary forces in 1795. 
As revolts and conspiracies took place in the French and Spanish Caribbean, the spirit of revolution spread throughout the region. An enslaved man named Tula reportedly knew about the French and Haitian revolutions and spoke about them. Tula, Louis Mercier, Bastien Carpata, and Pedro Wacao were all instrumental in the revolt. It's not clear whether the revolt was the result of a planned conspiracy or happened spontaneously, but the strike on the Dinep plantation turned into a widespread revolt. At its height, the revolt involved about 2,000 enslaved people out of the 12,000 who lived on the island. Some free Black people and Maroons, or fugitives who lived in independent communities, also joined the revolt against the colonists. At first, colonial authorities turned to a Roman Catholic priest named Father Schenck to help with negotiations. But revolt leaders did not budge on their calls for freedom. When negotiations failed, the Dutch decided to use armed force and turned to white, colored, and black militias to suppress the rebellion. The insurgents claimed that support would be arriving from Saint-Domingue. But by late September, the revolt had been suppressed. The leaders of the rebellion, including Tula, Mercier, and Carpata, had been captured. Two white people had been killed, while around 100 enslaved people were murdered. Tula was tortured on the rack and forced to confess that he planned to kill all white people in Curacao, and then he was executed. Other revolt leaders were also put to brutal deaths. After the revolt, colonial authorities made efforts to roll back some of the harsh labor practices imposed on enslaved people that led to the rebellion. Though there was a little anti-slavery resistance in Curacao in the years after the 1795 revolt, there weren't many major slave revolts on the island throughout the 19th century. Slavery was abolished in Curacao in 1863. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can keep up with us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at TDIHC Podcast. Email still works. Send us a note at thisday at iheartmedia.com. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We'll be back tomorrow with another one. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.